When I went to grad school, my main degree was in psychology, and I thought I would become a psychologist. But when I started to do therapy, I did not enjoy it very much, and I was not very good at it. And the longer I saw people, the unhealthier they got. Um, but then I started to work part-time as a pastor, and I felt this strange tug towards the local church. When I would talk to people that were in clinical psychology, none of them said, yeah, if you want to change people's lives, go work at a church. But I just found myself haunted and captivated and inspired by the church. And that's what I want to talk to you about today, what I think Jesus would want Crossings to think about today. One of my heroes is a man named Frederick Beekner. Uh, he's a great writer. He grew up in a very unchurched family. His dad committed suicide when he was a boy. Uh, he went on to become a brilliant writer, lived in a very sophisticated, very non-religious East Coast community. And then against all odds, he met Jesus. And he ended up going to seminary. And this was very disorienting to the people in his little world. He was at a dinner party one day when a very well-educated woman in his family turned to him and said, I hear you are entering the ministry. Was it your own idea or were you poorly advised? And then he writes this. The answer that she could not have heard, even if I had given it, was that it was not an idea at all, neither my own nor anyone else's. It was a lump in the throat. It was an itching in the feet. It was a stirring in the blood. It was a name which, when I wrote it out in a dream, I knew was a name worth dying for. Even if I was not brave enough to do the dying myself and could not even name the name for sure. Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a high and driving purpose. I will give you a purpose worth living for and a hope worth dying for. I'll make you a voice of hope. And that's the church. The church, see, is his idea. It's his legacy. It's his family. It is in some strange way his presence on earth. Where else can people go to learn the value of every human life and the offer of forgiveness for every sin, the power of the resurrection, the demands of God's justice, the triumph of God's purpose? So I want to talk today about the church and this church and why it matters. Ask you if you're all in. I want to take you back to the very first conversation in history about the church. One day Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus blesses Peter. This is not unusual. Rabbis would often pronounce a blessing on their disciple if they got an answer right. But what Jesus goes on to say would have been a big surprise. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will build my church. Now, the disciples' first response would have been, what's a church? This is the first time we see the word, not just in the Bible, but in all of human history. No religious leader had ever said anything like this. Moses didn't say, I'm going to build my synagogue. Buddha didn't say, I'm going to build my temple. Muhammad didn't say, I'm going to build my mosque. In the ancient world, there were tribal religions and schools of philosophy and wisdom traditions. This was something different. Jesus was going to build an all-inclusive community of love 
that would not just tolerate but embrace every gender, ethnicity, nationality, culture, status that would make a family of enemies like slave versus free or Roman versus barbarian or Jew versus Gentile. A community that would have as its mission for the first time, not in the enriching of its members, but they're sacrificing themselves for the enrichment of outsiders to bring the knowledge of the living God to every person and the generosity of God to every need and to do this with a humility that would bow to honor the most demeaned slave and with a courage that would defy the threat of Nero even while praying for him. Not only had nothing like this ever existed, See, no one had ever thought of something like this. Jesus did this. I live in the Bay Area where often we think we invented innovation in the 21st century. Let's just do a thought experiment. Imagine you were a penniless carpenter 2,000 years ago, and your task was to create a movement that would live for millennia, that would launch more hospitals, research universities, relief organizations, inspire more art than anything in history, that would spread to every continent, every language, attract billions of followers, not only still exist, but be growing 2,000 years later, and that would literally divide human history up into before you and after you. What would you do? And Jesus the carpenter did this. He loved and taught and healed and died. And this passage is the first time that the disciples get a glimpse of how big his identity is. Truly, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now they're ready for the first time to get a little glimpse of how big his project is. And his project is the church. That's it. That's the whole thing. Jesus is putting all of his eggs in the church basket, and he's going to do it through them. And the disciples' heads are ready to explode. They didn't sign up for the church building business. They signed up for the rabbi following business. Lots of guys signed up for that business. It's a good business. You learn Torah. You follow the rules. You attract a nice wife. You raise a nice family. But build something no one had ever heard of. Sacrifice time, money, energy, career. Have people laugh at you. Run risks. Get persecuted. Go to prison. End up being martyred. Hey, Peter, was this your idea or were you? you badly advised. <laughs> Only here's the thing. Only here's the thing. This is the chance of a lifetime. They knew somehow this was worth living for and worth dying for. This made just catching fish and collecting taxes, trying to make money for a living, look awful small. A few key questions for us to notice. First, Who's the church going to belong to? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. He didn't say, I will build some churches. There'll be Peter's church and Andrew's church and Thomas's church for doubters and Zacchaeus's church for very small people. This is Jesus's church. We love him. We study him. We follow him. We point other people to him. Crossings has one purpose, to help people find and follow Jesus. Who is going to build Jesus' church? Well, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus claims he's going to be in on this. Really? Really? I was thinking, if you've been around church as much at all, and probably lots of you have, have you ever noticed how messed up churches can be? 
and not just attenders, church leaders can be some of the most messed up, dysfunctional, self-centered, inadequate, insecure, emotionally unhealthy, needy, maladapted people in the world. Amen? And I know my wife is married to one of them. She can tell you stories that would curl your hair. How does the church keep going? Jesus is building it. He's often building it in secret places at the margins through the poor in spirit, often through an unpaid volunteer that nobody but Jesus thinks is important at all, or a little group of people who meet together to pray, or a widow whose tiny little offering is in God's eyes the biggest gift of all. It's through you. How powerful is the church going to be? Extremely powerful. Stack up nations, corporations, they come and go. Not the church. The expression, the gates of Hades, was language in the ancient world about the ultimate human enemy, death and hell itself. And Jesus' confidence is just staggering. You have to think about this. He doesn't say, when the forces of hell are unleashed, the gates of church will be able to keep hell out, so you'll be okay, you'll be safe. What he says is, when the forces of the church are unleashed, the gates of hell will not be able to keep the church out of hell. In other words, the church is on the march now, guys. And it is hell on earth all over the place. But the church has forces, the likes of which the church has never the world has never seen. And it's not money, and it's not army, and it's not bombs. It's love, and mercy, and grace, and compassion, and humility. And they have been unleashed, and the gates of Hades will crumple before them, and the darkness is going down. And I don't know, but I wonder if there was a moment when the disciples responded one by one, now that they knew what the Jesus Church Project was, and their hearts were pounding out of the chest, amen, amen. I'm in. And that's the question the very existence of the church raises for people all the time and not for you and me. What would this church be like that Jesus was going to build? Well, he began to teach and live and model three brilliant, simple, profound ideas, three great truths that propelled God's great eternal project of community from what it had been basically restricted to this little people Israel, their culture and religion and so on, into the worldwide movement that would become the church. Jesus is the one who took this step. These three ideas are claims, really, that are core to the church's identity. They come from what Jesus did to create the church that now we get to be a part of. The first idea is this. Now, in this new community, everybody's welcome. Everybody, absolutely anybody. In Jesus' day, you know, folks thought approach to God was kind of available only through this one little country, this one little religion. It was commonly thought that certain people were welcome in the temple, welcome to come before God. Others were not welcome. And if there's one characteristic about Jesus that was his signature that scandalized everybody, it was how he would love, embrace, include, talk to, eat with, care about absolutely anybody that came to him, Jews, but also Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, beggars, slaves, 
tax collectors, prostitutes for crying out loud, the demon possessed, Roman soldiers. He was so famous for this, even his opponents acknowledged it. One man trying to trap him said, teacher, we know that you're sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and show deference to no one that you do not regard people with partiality. He was so famous for this that he was heavily criticized for it. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's basically what got Jesus killed. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, his last recorded conversation before he died was with a convict, a thief, hanging next to him who said, remember me, and Jesus said, okay, you two, you're in, you're with me. It's like he couldn't help himself. Yeah, you come on in. And after he died, the strangest thing happened. You gotta understand, there'd never been a community like this. The ancient world generally had no regard for slaves. Slavery was ubiquitous there. Greek philosopher Aristotle said that all non-Greeks, people not like him, were slaves by birth, by temperament. They were born that way. Slaves generally could be tortured, degraded, used for sex, killed for growing old or useless. But the church remembered how Jesus took a basin and washed his disciples' feet like a slave. And they actually cherished slaves. They actually called themselves slaves. Nobody else did that. This was so well known that Christianity was sometimes called a slave religion, historically. That was not intended as a compliment. One observer noted in the ancient world, any slaves they have among them, they persuade to become Christian because of their love toward them. They become brothers without discrimination. Ancient world had little use for the poor. World generally doesn't. But this odd little community called the church, remember Jesus said in Luke 6, blessed are the poor. They remember Jesus told the rich young ruler, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And they welcomed the poor so much, this is true, a Roman emperor who was opposed to Christianity said this about why Christianity kept growing. He said, I think that when the poor were overlooked by the pagan priests, Roman priests, the impious Galileans, that is Christians, noticed this and devoted themselves to generosity. They support not only their poor, but ours as well, as everybody can see that our people lack aid from us. There was this group of people who loved God and loved each other and loved the world so deeply that this strange miracle happened. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all are one, in Christ Jesus. So who does Jesus welcome today to the church? Everybody, everybody, poor and rich, black and old, white, young and old, Democrat, Republican, atheist, agnostic, skeptic, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, Wicca, straight, gay, trans, depressed, happy, addict, married, single, divorced, got it together, fallen apart. If you came today because you love Jesus, if you came today under protest because somebody else loves Jesus and you couldn't get out of it, if you came today because you're desperate for help and you don't know where else to look, it is not an accident that you are here. It was Jesus' plan because he said he was going to build his church and his church is a place where everybody welcome and that means you and me and everybody else in the world. And this is a life or death deal. It's not just about religion. We live in a world where people have become so isolated. You may know this. The U.S. Attorney General released a report in May that said that loneliness has become a public health crisis. It's killing folks. And you got something to offer. 
I was telling a group of pastors here yesterday, there was a study in Alameda County in California where I live, tracked the lives of 7,000 people over nine years. Researchers found that isolated people were three times more likely to die than people who are a part of a strong community. People who have bad health habits, smoking, they eat badly, um, don't exercise, don't get sleep, but had strong relationships, social ties, live significantly longer than people who have great health habits, but are relationally isolated. In other words, it is better to eat Twinkies with your friends than to eat broccoli alone. Yeah, you like that one, don't you? I am not making this up. Generally, the American Medical Association infected 276 volunteers with a virus that produces the common cold. The study found that people with strong emotional connections did four times better fighting off illness than people who were relationally isolated and lonely. They were less susceptible to colds, they shed less virus, and they produced significantly less mucus than relationally isolated subjects. I am not making this up. Journal of AMA, they produce less mucus. It is literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. <laughs> in fact, Tyler Vanderweel, Harvard, the Human Flourishing Project, uh, in an article a couple months ago, cited one study that found people who simply do what you're doing, attend church, are 33 less likely to die than people who don't attend church. So a great evangelistic motto for crossings could be, come to crossings or die. <laughs> Jesus' plan was for everybody who's part of his church to be little agents of love, see? Where you work and where you live and where you go to school and where you shop, you never know where God is just one conversation away. And, and this leads to the second great truth. The first great truth, now in this community, this is what Jesus did. Everybody here is welcome. Second great truth that Jesus uniquely clarified is nobody's perfect. Isn't that good news in this community? Religious communities always have a way because they involve the pursuit of righteousness, of dividing people up into the good guys and the bad guys, the righteous and the unrighteous, often in very superficial or shallow ways. In Jesus' day, often it was the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees, and then the sinners were the other group. Interestingly, a great New Testament scholar says, when you see the word sinners in the New Testament, you kind of have to put quote marks on it because it doesn't generally refer to people who necessarily have evil moral character or are anti-God. It's the spiritually marginalized, people thought to be not respected, the excluded. And Jesus was quite famous for saying, actually, we all need God just the same. He once put it like this, no one is good except God alone. His friend John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. Jesus got in trouble for this. Nobody's perfect. You would often say it's the religious people who pride themselves on their correct belief and their correct behavior that are actually most at spiritual risk. On the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Nobody's perfect. So can we just come to church and not be perfect? 
not have to impress anybody or look spiritual or pious or like we got it together. Ought to be the last place. Old story, a little kid comes running into the house and he's got a dead rat and his mom is there and she's being visited by the pastor of their church, but the kid doesn't notice that the pastor is there. In his excitement, he just says, mom, you'll never guess what. I saw this rat running in the backyard, so I threw a rock at it and it hit it and it kind of stunned the rat. So I went over there and I kicked it and it just laid there. So I stomped on it and then I picked it up and I threw it against the garage and I picked it up and I threw it again as hard as I could. And then he sees the pastor of the church is there and his mom is looking daggers at him. So he picks the rat up and says in a very pious voice, and then the dear Lord called him home. We just get this weird thing in churches where we think we're supposed to look and act. And with Jesus, it was just the opposite. So this community, no pretending, no reputation building, no hiding. What a relief. When you go to work, you got to look strong. When you go to look school, you, when you go to school, you got to look smart. We are the island of misfit toys, every one of us. We celebrate the recognition and public confession of inadequacy. Just a bunch of goofballs. Who's messed up? Who's got ego problems or family problems or emotional problems or financial problems or pride problems? Who needs everybody? Who's got it all together? Nobody. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. See, this changed the world. And then the third idea, the third great truth that Jesus manifested and lived and then taught and enables. Anything's possible. Why is it that we just can't help but dream? God's put this knowledge deep in the heart. Anything's possible. Again, this comes right from Jesus. His disciples were talking about if it's hard for rich people to be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with anything's possible. Remember, Jesus talks about his idea of the church, and he says he'll build it on Simon, who he called Peter, the rock. And the other disciples are saying, seriously, Peter, who leapt out of the boat, sank in the water because he didn't have enough faith. Peter, to whom Jesus was about to say, get behind me, Satan, because he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Peter, who couldn't even stay awake to pray in the garden. Peter, who bragged, even if everybody else denies you, I will not deny you, and then denied Jesus not once but three times. Peter, who tried to defend Jesus by grabbing a sword and was so inept, all he could do was cut the guy's ear off, and Jesus has to patch it back on and apologize. He's going to be the rock? Uh-huh. Because now, anything's possible. A greedy tax collector named Zacchaeus will become the poster boy for generosity. A five times married, shacked up Samaritan woman will become Jesus' first designated preacher. Jesus is crucified, but on the third day he rose again. The stone got rolled away. Anything's possible. And then on Pentecost, he sent his Holy Spirit to invade the earth and indwell human hearts and give guidance and wisdom and comfort and conviction and faith and power. And it happened. And the church's greatest enemy, Saul, will become its greatest champion, Paul. And to this day, lives are changed and marriages are healed and the guilty are forgiven and addicts are given sobriety because with Jesus, anything is possible. 
the person you think is farthest away. Long time ago, one time, I went to get a haircut back in Rockford, Illinois, where I grew up. A guy named Jim was cutting my hair, asking what I do, started asking about God, and was quite interested. I said to my mom afterwards, Mom, next time you get your hair done, because she had her hair done by Pam, Jim's wife, you ought to talk with her about God. They're really interested. And my mom said, no, 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 no. I know Pam. I know her lifestyle. I know her family. Nobody's farther away from God. She, she wouldn't want to even try. I said, no, you ought to do it. So the next time she went to get her hair done, she's sitting in the chair, and she remembers our conversation, and she says a little prayer. She says, God, I don't want to talk to Pam. I know she's not interested. If you want me to talk to her about you, you got to give me a sign. It's a true story. Pam walked up to my mother and said, Kathy, I understand that you and John lead a Bible study. Could Jim and I come to it? <laughs> my mom took that as a sign. <laughs> and they began to talk, and she found out Pam's story, why she had been so resistant. She was very religiously confused as a little girl. Uh, one parent was Jewish, and the other one was Catholic. So one parent would take her to synagogue, and then the other would make her say the rosary to ask forgiveness for going to synagogue. <laughs> So she said, I want nothing to do with God. By the time she was 16, she could drink any man she knew under the table, alcoholic. By the time she was 21, she'd already been through several marriages. By the time my mom knew her, she had been married five times. She had gotten into AA and become sober, but you know, there's the higher power thing. She didn't want anything to do with God. So she said, I will just name my higher power Ralph. So she turned her life and will over to Ralph. And then she told my mom one day, she was at an AA meeting and this guy came in and he was hopelessly drunk and smelled really bad, threw up. And when it was time to share, he said, my name's Ralph, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and it just pierced her and she said, that's not my God. And so she began to ask God to reveal himself to her. And that led to a day when my mom was sitting in that chair and she became a follower of Jesus, and Jim became a follower. Jesus is still in the life-changing business. Anything's possible. And now you get a front row seat. This church started 1959, 55 people. Three decades later, in the 1980s, people were praying, oh God, oh God, would you let this church grow to 200 people? Now, like, I was in the bathroom between services. There's 200 people in the bathroom at this church. <laughs> God is opening extraordinary doors. A church in Mayfair wants to be part of a vibrant community, wants to point people to Jesus, said, we can't do this on our own. So they come to crossings. We believe something's happening at crossings. We know we're a different denomination, we're a different tradition, we get all that, but could we give you our church building and our budget and our staff and our congregation so that there might be a Crossings Mayfair, a voice of hope in our part of town? Do you understand how unusual that is? What a humble, courageous, generous decision that is on the part of the church. That hardly happens in the history of churches. I drove past it this weekend. It's gonna happen. Anything's possible. There's a clinic in Midtown 
And it comes to crossings. We've been trying to serve the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of the under-resourced. We want to do more, but we know we can't do it on our own. And we've been watching you. We know you got a clinic. You got people. We believe something's happening at crossings. Could we give you our building and our budget and our staff so that there might be one clinic in multiple locations to be a voice of hope, especially for people that are hopeless? That doesn't just happen. Anything's possible. I drove by the Edmond location this weekend for the new campus that will be there because the first location there can no longer hold all the people who want to come and learn more about Jesus. Then I was thinking, what if you went back to the 1950s or the 1980s to that first group of 55 people who were praying for 200 people said, just wait till 2023. You will not believe. What about the future? What might happen in 2053? I was having lunch with uh, Marty and a couple of folks yesterday, and he was saying, you know, it's just about our church's 65th anniversary. That'll come up next year. But Marty said, I don't find myself thinking a lot about that one. I find myself thinking about our 100th anniversary. And I thought, how cool is that? That year, Marty will be 100 years old. <laughs> he will be the oldest pastor in America. How cool. He's dreaming about that. And that will be cool, but that wasn't his point. His point was, what if we can build a church that will be greater for our children and their children than it was for us? What if it could be, again, a place that doesn't enrich the people that come to it, but enriches the people that don't come? And what if it will be greater for our children and their children and their children than it was in our day? What if there will be a future that would be so glorious that we will be the ones who look like we had little faith? What if everybody here who knows and loves Jesus rolled up their sleeves and offered up their hearts and said, I'm in, and got in the deep, honest, life-changing, raw, courageous community and volunteered their best time and effort and energy where God has gifted them and the needs are so great, and tithe, trusted God with 10%, and as Abel gave even generously beyond that because they discovered again what was learned by the early impoverished church, you just cannot outgive God. What if the prison campuses and the building of chapels became so vibrant and loving and faith-filled that lives got changed and everybody in Oklahoma saw it and what Jesus said 2,000 years ago actually became true in this day, in this state. I was in prison and you visited me. And our society began to experience a radical change for now there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, prisoner or non-prisoner, convict or non-convict, inmate or non-inmate. You are all one in Christ Jesus. What if... Someday, by God's grace, everybody in this whole metropolitan area could live within 15 or 20 minutes of a campus of this church. What if you as a congregation cheered and loved and cared for young staff members and young pastors so vibrantly that in the era in which we live, where people are dropping out of ministry, thinking about quitting, average age of a minister has grown considerably older because young people are thinking, why would I do that? What if you loved those folks so much that this became a church that was like a magnet and gifted adults, young and old, would say, I don't care so much about money. I don't care so much about building a resume. I don't care so much about security, but I would give my right arm to be part of building this church. What if there could be a revival, not a one-time emotion-led temporary wave, but a long-term, biblically-grounded, 
chronic, lasting movement of Jesus that could turn back the tides of consumerism and materialism and racism and secularism that swamp our nation and bring vibrant spiritual health and the transforming power of the gospel to Oklahoma, to every community, to prisons and schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. Because the thing is, he is still building his church. He thought it up. It's his church. He created it. He authorized it. He resourced it when it had nothing. He launched it when nobody had any idea of it. He continues to superintend it, no, badly, no matter how badly those of us who are supposed to lead it mess it up, and he has no intention of letting it go until it fulfills the purpose for which he created. And no matter what problems it faces, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the ministry and the community that you have been called, invited, challenged, offered to devote your life to. Others have come before us. Others will come after us. This is your day. This is our day. This is our moment. What if we were all in? Are you all in? I got to tell you, I can't wait to see. I just can't wait to see. That little voice you hear is me in California, just watching and cheering. So let's pray. Would you, I want to invite the prayer teams to come forward, any location. Bow your heads for a moment. And if you're all in, if, if the power of what Jesus is doing in this world uh, tugs at your heart and mind, then just tell them right now, God, I'm all in. Help me be all in. I want to be all in. God, thank you for the church. There has never been anything. There has never been anything like it. No one else has ever thought up anything like it. When every human endeavor and organization is long forgotten on the ash heap of history, your community will still be the brilliant jewel that you love. Help every one of us who follows Jesus to be a part of it. As best we can be, God, we're in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed with this prayer, and everybody said, Amen. Thank you, and God bless you so much.